If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You must learn to listen to the Rebel and the Rogue, or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Trexperts, Trexperts. Yeah, we just can't get that in sync, can't, can we? Can't time it up. It's very hard in the virtual world. In reality, it's easy, but in the virtual world, it's nearly impossible. We're going to have to, one of us will just have to say it. Anyway. It began as a routine mission. There appears to be a massive displacement wave moving toward us. And it would change their destiny. Captain, is something out there? Brace for impact. One crew and one ship's epic journey 70,000 light years away. We're on the other side of the galaxy. Now oh. it's a quest to get back home. Why are you holding us here? See it from the beginning. We have no way back unless you send us. On the premiere of Star Trek Voyager. I, I'm excited. This is a great show. This is another great virtual show via Zoom. Uh, we have some wonderful returning guests. Uh, Mr. Uh, Robert Meyer Burnett, on loan from the Network, is back and better than ever. McClunky, welcome. It, it's been a while. You know, it's, it's been good a while. To, it, it's good to be back uh, uh, on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, it, is, it is good to have you back, but you've been busy, so we haven't had you in a while, which is always always a good thing. And then, uh, again, returning to the show, writer-producer uh, Ashley Miller, a writer of Thor and X-Men First Class, a producer on Black Sails and Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and uh, You're going to have to Burgess's, trim that list down, uh, Ash. Someday. Meredith Burgess's, Meredith Burgess's best friend, Damn Ashley right. Edward Miller. Hey, you and know what? joining hey, us. I, I, am, I am so excited to be on the show again. But you know what excites me even more is uh, no idea. Rob Burnett's quarantine facial hair. Just, you look so so distinguished. Uh, it, it comes and goes, you know, it comes and goes, but I, I appreciate that. You know, I feel like, like it's as close as I get to the mirror universe. Right, yeah. Because hours could feel like days. It just goes, One the days drag on. One man podcast. Okay, and joining us to talk about the 25th anniversary of Star Trek Voyager is... The man, the myth, the legend, showrunner and creator of shows like Hannibal, Pushing Daisies, uh, Dead Like Me. And he got his start on a little show called Star Trek Voyager. He was the McKee fighting against the Federation, fighting to make it better. And he's going to uh, tell us all about what that experience was like. And we'll talk about some other things because that's what we do on the show. So welcome back, Mr. Brian Fuller. Woo! Hello. 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 Good to see you in your quarantined uh, home. Um, we've been asking <laughs> <Yeah>. everyone. This. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a boy in the plastic bubble. Um, we've been asking everyone this. We did a show a couple of weeks ago on best Star Trek virus shows. But what's a good Star Trek quarantine episode? Well, uh, for to tonight's uh, purposes, it, night. it's macrocosm, right? It's, it's about the giant viruses that uh, get all engorged uh, after a transporter accident and take over the ship, right? Armed. 
Captain Catherine Janeway of the Federation Starship Voyager to anyone within range. My ship has been seized by unknown life forms. Require any and all assistance. Afraid. By this time tomorrow, there could be thousands. We don't have much time. Alone. Hurry. Captain Janeway faces the fight of her life on the next Star Trek Voyager. Yep, and what, what, that's perfect because nobody's mentioned that before. Now, I'm sure if we ask Rob <laughs> Burnett, if we ask Rob Burnett, I know what his answer would be. You know what my answer is. I, I do, I do. Uh, uh, may I guess? You may guess. You should have wished me luck. The immunity uh, syndrome. Second season's most unsung episode of the original series, The Immunity Syndrome. That is correct. It is unsung. It's not it? unsung. We sing about it all the time. Nah, yeah, but nah, nobody we else don't count. We don't count. Oh, so we don't count. With an attitude like that, you never will. I'm just saying. I'm just saying <laughs> that nobody else talks about it. Obviously, we're the experts of what we say goes. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so. Brian, tell us a little bit about you had, you know, look, Voyager obviously was a very formative experience and and it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Tell us a little bit about getting involved with it. And I want to talk about why that show people are still excited about it, you know, 25 years later. And, and you know, it's obviously a show that means a lot to you. And, you know, you've gone on, done some amazing things since. But, you know, you you still, you know, have a soft spot in your heart for it. Well, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, at the time, Voyager was not, well, I, we were aware of the fan reaction to Voyager was uh, divisive at, at the time. And I think that there was something interesting about the concept of the show of a lone vessel being thrown to the other side of the galaxy and having to make way in the Wild West. That was such a wonderful concept. And for me, as a, uh, you know, as a Deep Space Nine fan and as somebody who feels like Deep Space Nine was really yeah. the, the most innovative of all the treks, it was, it was coming on the heels of a really innovative series that was taking a lot of chances with character dynamics, a lot of chances with political allegory in a way that Star Trek had done before, but, you know, episodically. And Deep Space Nine was, was telling these wonderful, uh, you know, long uh, arcs of of political allegory in a way that we haven't met before. So when Voyager came along, it was almost in some ways an antidote to the, the vision of Deep Space Nine that was not traditional Trek. It was because it was exploring all of those wonderful uh, elements that we love uh, about Star Trek, but Voyager was very much like a reaction to Deep Space Nine in some ways, I think creatively. There was a desire to go back to what Next Generation did so well and a risk averseness, at least in the, the beginning, uh, because they said, we want these ratings that Next Generation had. We want the success that Next Generation had because Deep Space Nine within the studio was sort of considered a noble failure and some quarters not even noble. Um, so it's interesting. You mean in terms of ratings? In terms or? of ratings. In terms of ratings. Not not in well, terms of nothing ever quality, lived obviously. Up to, nothing ever lived up to next generation in terms of ratings, did it? Even Other now. than Wheel of Fortune, no. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how many like didn't like something like seventy three million people tune in for the finale? It was extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was extraordinary. I mean, you, you, you know, you talk about obviously what, you know, half the country over half the country watched the finale of MASH, but the finale of Next Generation, a syndicated show, it's remarkable. It transcended all of the expectations of this little sci-fi show. And so when Deep Space Nine wasn't uh, getting the ratings that Next Generation was, it wasn't taking into account that there was just general fatigue and that you can't just keep doing a show and hope that the same amount of people tune in. Uh, so it was interesting working on it as a fan because I really 
I really wanted a Deep Space Nine job. And there was a Deep Space Nine job opening, and then there was a Voyager job opening, and my heart was at Deep Space Nine. But fortunately, I came into Voyager about the same time that it, it upshifted into a much more dramatic dynamic with the introduction of Seven of Nine and going through Borg space. Uh, so it was it was a good time to to board the ship, but that's not to say that there weren't wonderful episodes beforehand. Uh, you know, I think one of my favorite episodes of Voyager is Melt, which was that season two or three. Brad Dorif, yeah, Brad Dorif, and and the amazing Tim Russ really getting down to dramatic basics for these iconic aliens with a, with a you know Brad Dorr playing a Beta Z and uh, Tim Russ playing a Vulcan and what happens when you know your chocolates and my peanut butter in a way that can cause a Vulcan to unravel so i think voyager initially really uh, was trying to be the next generation um, and finally decided what it was going to be around season four. And I think part of that in a strange way is we lost very quickly the dynamics of the Maquis uh, interacting with a Starfleet crew and like, you know, they were terrorists and they, they committed terrorist acts and everybody was like, it's okay. Let's sit in the mess hall together. And it felt like it was, this is a bad analogy, but it's like if you're telling a story about characters and then you just decide to make the characters black, but you don't do anything to change the character's experience because you're just not doing anything to change the character's experience. But that's that's not good storytelling. You need to know that these characters are culturally coming from a place that is different. So they can't just be regular members of the crew, which it, it, it fell into very quickly to solve the problem of Deep Space Nine. And uh, I think that that caused it to take a while to find its voice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things that I guess, you know, as an old, old, old being the operative word, as an old time fan, that I don't think I ever really appreciated at the time was how meaningful the casting of Kate Mulgrew was to a whole generation of women. I mean, for me, she was the woman who Take, talk like Kate Hepburn. I never had this huge affinity for her. And it was only later on that I realized that she meant to a whole generation of women what, you know, Bill Shatner me meant to people like Darren and me and, and Rob, you know, and, and it's really remarkable. And I think it's fascinating to me now, to, you know, Netflix released their um, ratings on the, the most streamed Star Trek shows. And Voyager is the number one most streamed uh, Star, Star Trek show on uh, on Netflix, which is uh, which is very interesting. I'm not sure what to make of that. Well, I think I think you hit the the nail on the head. It was the appeal of Kate Mulgrew as a strong uh, you know female captain that was leading the show for a change. And I think Kate was really great in the role, and she did have those kind of Hepburn esque uh, expressions that that you know made her easy to to do impressions of but <laughs> right, yeah. she was she was a fantastic character and and elevated the elevated the Kate Mulgrew elevated the character of of Catherine Janeway in a way that I think surprised a lot of people as a you know as, as a gay man I am constantly running into gay Star Trek fans who Voyager is their favorite show uh, Captain Janeway is their favorite captain because as a gay man, I don't relate to Captain Kirk. I, I think he's kind of a pig and a dick. Uh, but like, hooray for that that stereotype. Um, and Picard was so cold that I, I never connected to them. I, I responded to him as an effective leader, but I wasn't like, I want to go have drinks with Captain Picard. Um, and Cisco, I thought, was an amazing captain and lead of a show. And really, it's for me, it's Cisco and Janeway are my favorite captains because they brought something that was not your typical straight white male uh, paradigm. And I think Kirk is one one end of the spectrum, and Picard is another end of the spectrum in terms of straight white male uh, archetypes. 
and you get you get a fresh uh, take on Star Trek by hiring a, a, a black captain to lead a show where he was a commander at the beginning. And then you, you get the same sort of change in dynamics with hiring a female lead. Cause we're, I mean, we're, as we're finding out in terms of our political temperature as a country, we may be more sexist than racist. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a, that's a shocking thing for, for Americans to kind of digest. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you, where do you feel, looking back, you know, 25 years later, the show was most successful? Where, where, what do you think the triumphs, and not necessarily specific episodes, although you can point to them, but what do you think is the legacy of the show in terms of uh, where it succeeds? And then, of course, we'll ask the opposite, which is where, where was it not as successful as it could have been? I, I want to hear from you guys, and I'll chime in. <laughs> well, Brian, I've got, got, yeah, got shirk an opinion. I um, one of the things about Voyager, and to be honest, because of you, and then because of John Ottman, I've gone back in and and watched episodes of Voyager. I didn't pay, to be honest, much attention to it when it first aired, but on rewatches, I find myself as one of those Netflix viewers going back and watching Voyager episodes more than other episodes. And what, what's interesting is when Michael Piller came on board, Next Generation, he always made the stories about the characters themselves. He began with the characters, and rather than in the first two seasons, the outside influence. But Voyager was interesting in that it was kind of a combination of the two. You had some really interesting, heady sci-fi concepts. I mean, I'm thinking of things like the Hyrogen, for instance, the, the, the holographic hunting, the, 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 the holograms and the holographic society or then you do episodes like workforce which was not a typical star trek episode a two-parter where the cast wakes up and it's like where are they what's going on or you do episodes like living witness where the doctor would be transported hundreds of years in the future and he wasn't ever going back to voyager or one of my favorite star trek episodes of all time blink of an eye Mm. and there was a lot of more i think a more heady sci-fi fair then most of the time, and that was, I think, when Voyager did it really well, it really did it well. And I wonder, was that uh, Brandon Braga? Was that your influence? I felt that it was, it, was, it was a schizophrenic show. Like, you'd get a good episode or a great episode, and then it wouldn't be so good. And you'd, it, you'd kind of ping pong in terms of quality. But when Voyager did good episodes, when they had some great stories, there was some really great stuff going on. And I felt that it, was, it, it had the most... The most it was the most sci-fi of all of the Star Trek shows when it was good. It's it's interesting because the um, you know Brandon Braga should be given a lot of credit for uh, Brandon Braga and Joe Manoski who were a pair and inseparable and wrote together even when they were credited separately they were always writing and creating together and it really was their two voices. Uh, uh, more commonly than anybody else's. And um, I think what was interesting in the, in the evolution of the show, which you could, you could sense the creative struggle. uh, And I witnessed the creative struggle when I was working there. uh, And there was an appetite for these bigger, bolder science fiction stories. And there was a, a lot of resistance from, uh, Rick Berman and, and embracing them because he just he was he was chasing the next generation and was not allowing Voyager to be the show that it could be and I think you know there are many episodes in four five and six the, the seasons that I'm that I'm watching now because they they air at eleven o'clock uh, on the Heroes Network or something like that and so I watch them every night as I'm like making my breakfast for the next day or what have you. And that's really good storytelling. And I'm, I'm constantly surprised because I was in the middle of it and had my own insecurities and was a staff writer uh, trying to figure out what my voice was while trying to recreate somebody else's voice, which is the, the plight of the staff writer. Um, there's a lot of really innovative storytelling in a way that um, I, I think makes it great Star Trek. Well, I think um, for me, 
Voyager was a show that I always wanted to like more than I think I actually. You son of a bitch. I know, right? But I think, look, here's, here's what I think happened with me, or just, just my experience as a Star Trek fan. And look, for the longest time, I was what we call a test pattern Trekkie, right? It's like, as long as there's a fucking Starfleet emblem, an arrowhead that's up there, I'm in. I'm watching you. I don't care. I'm watching. Um, and, you know, on some level, I'm always going to love it. I think that, like you, like Deep Space Nine was my jam. Uh, and I loved uh, Commander then Captain Cisco from Go, even before he shaved his head and he had the, the goatee. And I loved how the clash of culture and the clash of point of view between the characters who were in that crew really informed the storytelling. Um, it really opened it up in ways that, um, that the storytelling never really opened up on The Next Generation. In spite of the fact that I love The Next Generation, it was just, it was a, it was a different show. It was a, it was a different way to go. It, it had you know, its own identity. And the conflict was always so organic and I always felt it, you know, and I always In felt- In Deep Space you know, Nine. Yeah, on Deep Space Nine. And when we got to Voyager, you know, the, the pilot, I thought was great, right? Yeah. And the, the setup was great. And I thought kind of exactly what you were laying out. Oh, so you, you have the Maquis and here is your opportunity to have these people who do things differently, right? They do it by the seat of their pants and they're pissed and they don't fuck around and they come from a world where it's life and death. You know, where it's like, it's almost a, a binary world. And you have, you know, a, a captain of a starship who comes from a world where it's, it's paradise. It began as a routine mission. There appears to be a massive displacement wave moving toward us. And it would change their destiny. Captain, there's something out there. Brace for impact. One crew and one ship's epic journey 70,000 light years away. We're on the other side of the galaxy. Now it's a quest to get back home. Why are you holding us here? See it from the beginning. We have no way back unless you send us. On the premiere of Star Trek Voyager. Right, and she is thrust into the fucking savage land where these guys come from. And on paper, they should be more prepared to deal with the world they find themselves in. And she shouldn't be. And right. the tension of the show, I felt like going into it, and I and I felt it early on in the show was, you know, who is going to move towards whom? Right. The 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 danger should always be that that Janeway would move toward the Maquis, while attempting to move the Maquis toward her, and that seemed like a great setup. And there were moments early on that I really loved. Like I loved in um in Phage, right? You know, when she basically tells, oh my God, all of a sudden I'm blanking. The um the starts with the B. You would know. Deans? Yes, thank you. The Vians. You know, she's like, look, you pull this shit again, I'm gonna respond with the deadliest force. And I believed it because I think Kate Mulgrew was badass. She was a badass. She sold that shit. And the next time the Vidian showed up, I was like, yep, here it comes. Here comes the, oh, yeah. She doesn't. She just kind of doesn't. And that was, that to me was, that was a little unsettling. And so I'm watching this show in the context of watching Deep Space Nine at the same time. Right. And Deep Space Nine was kind of, was, was finding itself, right? And really finding its legs in terms of the storytelling at a time when Voyager suddenly seemed to be stumbling. And, you know, in contrast, it was a little more difficult for me. That said, the things that I loved, I loved Meld, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons why I love Meld is because Suter was such an interesting character. And look, I love Brad Dorif, you know, Exorcist 3, he's awesome. Um, he's a great actor. He's such an interesting presence. And he had a different way of looking at things, right? Basics. You know, basics was great because, you know, that was really, as long as I'm remembering, it was in fact basics, right? Where like Suter basically saves the day and he gets to right. save the day because- That's basics part two. Yeah, exactly. He's, <laughs> a, he's a killer, man. And that's awesome. It's like, it was making a point or it seemed to be making a point that sometimes you need that guy. And I felt something when this sociopath serial killer sacrificed himself, right? That was powerful. Um, I loved Year of Hell. Um, you know, I loved- any uh, Voyager story where the the universe they were living in or the world they were living in was populated either by characters who were forcing our heroes to have a completely different point of view, like the shoot, um, or um, 
living in a world that was essentially a repudiation of the the premise of the show, like Year of Hell. And I don't know that, you know, the show to me, like kind of never consistently got there all the time. Although there were definitely episodes that I totally loved. Like I loved Unity. Like I, I loved all of that stuff. Um, but it was it was difficult for me at the time to really embrace Voyager and love it when it was just there were these things that I just I wanted to be present. And it seems to me that what you responded to was the episodes where it wasn't warmed over Next Generation, yes. where it couldn't have been done on Next Generation. When Voyager was doing a show that was distinctly Voyager, you know, that couldn't have been an episode of Next Generation, like Living Witness or Bride of, Bride of Chaotica. Yeah. This is no ordinary mission. What was that? No ordinary ship. Captain Proton, surrender! Not a chance. And no ordinary crew. Ha! You're no match for Arachnia. It's a fantasy gone wild. Power the death ray! But the danger... Uh, incoming. ...is all too real. We're going down! ...on the next <laughs> Star Trek Voyager. That's where it's sweet spot. That's where where it lived. Where That's why IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we love Mark, IMDb, Brian. Can I? Mark, can I? I can I? I just want to step in here before I get completely rolled over. Um, <laughs> That's Zoom, baby. <laughs> it's Zoom. Soon. Um, I have a I have a slightly different uh, uh, perspective because I was on the pilot for Voyager. I was working in the art department as a uh, concept artist, and. Um, the problem was at the, from the very beginning that though the Maquis were labeled as such and they were labeled as different than the Federation people, it really didn't come across. No. They, they, were, they were just, I mean, they didn't even wear, they, they didn't wear different uniforms. They were exactly the same, but oh, they're Maquis, I guess. They, it, it, it was never really established deeply in the characters themselves. Uh, from the beginning. Um, and it was, it, I think it was, they were being safe by sort of putting this little spin on it in in the description of everything. But it was basically at first the same, as you were saying, Mark, the same uh, next gen stories, just with a different wrapping around them. And I think as they as they established and, and pushed out the edge of the envelope uh, to explore these actual relationships, um, it got better, and as they, uh, as they, they had a tendency to focus on the secondary characters a lot more that may or may not have been uh, rather interesting or have uh, any growth to them. Um, I'm speaking about Cass, uh, but it was it was sort she's of she's a child. Uh, she <laughs> yes, but she's not. <laughs> That's the thing. She was she sort of played both ends of that spectrum. And it didn't it didn't work. But in terms of when you know when we were watching the the pilot in the in the Paramount uh, uh, theater uh, for that first uh, the first time, everyone was so enthused. It was it was a great new start. Uh, there were promising things. And then, as Ashley said, it sort of just sort of stayed at that level, and it didn't it didn't go anywhere for a long time. But uh, you know, finally, you know, near the third and fourth uh, season, it sort of ramped up a bit. Yeah, I remember that Paramount premiere so well mm -hmm. in the Paramount Theater and watching Caretaker and thinking, this could be the best Star Trek show ever. Yeah. I, I mean, I was just yeah. so, I love that pilot. And, you know, you get, you know, it's like the Whitewater Rapids. You get, you know, the cast is there and everyone's excited, the crew, and, and you're watching on the big screen and you get, you know, caught up in the excitement. I'm yeah. just like, this is great. I mean, I think I wrote a review of it. I'm like, this is going to be the best Star Trek show ever. That's exactly how I felt. <laughs> and then I watched next week and went, hmm, okay. Well, if I, you know, the, I thought the first season of Voyager was pretty strong for the most part. But one of the things about you're talking about, Darren, the Maquis, my problem with the entire Maquis storyline is the Maquis storyline was very specific. It, it came out of Deep Space Nine. It was about annexed, you know, these planets have been annexed to the Cardassians. Once you took the Maquis out of the situation that they were in, in terms of their sector of space, it didn't matter anymore. Right. So the conflict that you were trying to set up with these Maquis members 
once you're on the other side of the galaxy, it had it's no moot. consequence. Yeah. It, it was absolutely moot. And the, the Maquis, the, the, the people that belonged to the Maquis weren't necessarily wrong. It wasn't like right. they were, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like Dr. Severin from A Way to Eden, you know, who wanted to set up a new way of life. These were just people that wanted their home planets to not um, be annexed to the Cardassians. I, I think the point you make is somewhat valid in the sense that, well, it doesn't matter anymore. We're arguing over territory millions of light years away. But look at what's going on now with coronavirus. It's like we're all in this terrible situation, and yet you still have the same political arguments that existed before coronavirus, where you have these idiots, you know, in um, uh, taking guns to, to, to municipalities. Uh, uh, you know, ignoring science and saying, let us have our haircuts. And it's like, so the whole idea is sometimes these things don't go away, even though any rational argument would say, yeah, we're all in it together. But then it turns out that people can't let go of the old ways. But that would have been a good thing to deal with. Dawn of the Dead, right? But we just didn't listen to them. One at a time. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Well, I think one of the things that that I, I, I totally agree with Rob about is that that dynamic and that conflict was was essentially dealt with in a coda where Janeway has everybody on on the uh, bridge and is saying we may have been separate coming into this part of the galaxy but now we are together and that's the way we will move forward and on one hand I'm like what a great leader like what a fantastic way to just cut through the shit and say we're we're one ship we have to be one crew this is the only way for it to work but then i agree with mark which is all the conflict goes out of the room and i think when seven of nine comes in later in in the show there's there's a a rejuvenation of conflict that was quickly dissipated after the pilot episode that could have that could have borne more st- storylines frankly and it would have been interesting if Chakotay's Chakotay said I'm gonna, I'm keeping my Maki ship we're not going to blow it up we're going to have right. two ships and over like if it were if it were now and the way we tell television stories now that last that coda of the pilot would have been the finale of the season and mm-hmm. you would have stretched those things out and explored them more, more thoroughly but we tell stories differently than than we did 20 years, 25 years ago. And I think that's, that's part of what is, is the, uh, the push and pull of my affection for Voyager is that I see why the characters do the things that they did, but I also recognize that there is, there was a lot more drama to be mined if they hadn't. Because of course, Voyager was fighting the lore of serialization, the lore of serialization, that Deep Space Nine, that made Deep Space Nine so great. But at the same time, I think one of the reasons that Voyager is so repeatable or why people are rewatching it so, is because it's standalone episodes. Um, That Mm -hmm. is an inherently more repeatable format than a serialized show. It's true. Well, especially when you get to some of those those great episodes, like we talked about Year of Hell. Um, I'm always surprised when I go back to Year of Hell, the criticism always for that episode is that, well, when the two-part is over, we're right back to the status quo, and none of it mattered, even though years did go by and entire civilizations were wiped out, and it's, it's this incredible uh, science fiction two-parter. And it's really interesting and it's really compelling and it deals with time travel in a very interesting way. And you're really following it in this real peril and it's, it's so compelling. And then at the end, it didn't matter whether it happened or not. It's almost like it didn't happen. And yet it was this literally galaxy shaking two-parter and that had no ramifications when you went to the next episode. The ultimate weapon. We have all eternity to accomplish our mission. Does not destroy. Captain, there's a spatial distortion heading toward us. It erases. All organisms and man-made objects have been eradicated. Now, Voyager gets caught in the crossfire. All hands brace for impact. Can a device that alters time ever be destroyed? It's trying to erase us from history. On the next Star Trek Voyager. Well, that, that goes to... Sorry, go ahead, Brian. That, 
the the year of hell and the 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 back uh, uh, behind the scenes drama around trying to craft that not only that episode but that season was was fascinating because we wanted year of hell to last the entire season. We wanted to see Voyager get its ass kicked every episode and through that season was going to be marbled the story of Anorax and the the time ship that was changing things. So we would go back to it every once in a while Mm -hmm. to remind the audience that's the the larger story. But because uh, Deep Space Nine had made Rick Berman allergic to serialized storytelling, (laughs) uh, violently so, that so many, like it it was interesting to see how charged up the writing room would would become over these ideas and the the capacity to say like, oh, we are really going to be on the outskirts of the galaxy and we're going to be fighting enemies who are going to be kicking us when we're down and the crew is going to have to separate and there's going to be following episodes where, that are going to deal with people on shuttlecrafts with, with uh, escape pods that are kind of like electron, electrically buoyed together and what what that would have like there'd be an episode where you never saw Janeway and you never saw Voyager because you're with the people who are on the escape pods trying to find a new uh, source of power or safety, and it was it was it was like creative crack for the writers room because we were like all of a sudden there was so many opportunities and. I remember Brandon going over to Rick's office with all of this enthusiasm and coming back broken with his head hanging low and, and having to break it to the writing staff, which we all felt like we're doing it. We're, 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 we're making great Star Trek and for him to come back and say, we can't and like, we can only do two episodes and as opposed to 24 or 22 uh, it was heartbreaking, and it was it was an interesting uh, division between what Rick Berman wanted the show to be, which was uh, episodic and uh, you know for the syndicated audience, and what we wanted to be as creative storytellers working with the Star Trek toy box. So, Year of Hell is such a, a fascinating uh, point in, in Voyager's history. Well, let me ask you this, right? Um, clearly, you know, there were arguments. I mean, it, it just sort of as said as the premise that that Rick became allergic to the serialized storytelling. Clearly, there were arguments that Ira Bear was having with Rick that Ira was winning and Brandon was losing those arguments. Is the reason Brandon was losing those arguments because Ira was winning? I mean, or, or what do you think the, the difference was from Rick's point of view? Like, why, you know, did he surrender to, to Ira but fight Brannon? Or, or what was really the dynamic there? Ira didn't give a fuck what Rick Berman said. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Brannon did. Right. Like, Ira was like, I don't care, you're wrong. This is what we're doing. And fire me <laughs> if you want to. He was always like, fire me. Like, if you don't like what I'm doing, fire me. But this is what we're doing. So if you're not behind it, then I suggest you find somebody else to do my job. And he was kind of fearless about it because he was, he was righteous uh, creatively and knew that this was the right direction for Deep Space Nine. It's how he understood it. It's how he saw it. And the best way for him to do his job is to pursue the vision of the show that he witnessed. And Brannon uh, cared too much about what Rick thought. He also owed Rick a lot more. I mean, Ira had had a, a career, uh, you know, and, you know, Ira is Ira. He's a very unique individual. And, you know, his credo is like uh, um, Randolph Scott in Ride the High Country. It's like, you know, he said this, you have to leave your house justified. So, he, I mean, he's just a world. I mean, he left Star Trek after the third season when they begged for him to come back. So, you know, hmm. Ira didn't give a shit about anything. Now, Brandon, you know, is a guy you know, who starts as an intern that 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 basically you know he you know he talks about michael being his mentor which is true but you know rick was his patron you know i mean rick kept promoting him and giving him these incredible opportunities to be a showrunner to to write movies so that's got to be a tough situation to be in and then you have to add you have your best friend your former collaborator coming in and saying you're doing the show all wrong 
this should be serialized when you know Ron comes briefly into the picture and and uh, you know and pitches it out and then you know he can't get any traction. I mean, I just I mean to me it's like I don't know if it's a soap opera or a drama. I mean that's why the, the behind the scenes of this show are, are have always fascinated me. Obviously, I've written a couple of books about it, but um, it's it's really remarkable. I mean that's my take on it. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I don't think you're. I don't think you're. You're wrong at all. I think it was. Uh, I think Brandon had a complicated relationship with Rick and had uh, a certain loyalty to him that Ira did not feel. Uh, Ira's loyalty was to the show. Ira's loyalty was to Star Trek, and I think Brandon's loyalty was was to Rick and then the show. Right. Okay. Um, what did you think of your ensemble? Um, because obviously all the Star Treks have had, you know, some strong ensembles, you know, others not as strong. I mean, bringing in uh, obviously uh, seven of nine was such a cagey smart decision. I mean, even now, uh, I think the one thing that whether people love Picard or hate Picard, they all love Jerry in it, regardless of what they think of the show. So, um, you know, overall, you know, what were your feelings? And obviously there's a cast that was just happy to get what they're given. And then you have the Robert Beltrans of the world, uh, you know, <laughs> who even 25 years later is still bitching about how they got nothing to do. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it, I remember when I first got uh, the job and Jerry Taylor would invite us into her office to watch dailies with her. Uh, and Robert Beltran would look right at the camera and mock the writing and mock the storytelling and mock the dialogue. And it was heartbreaking because it, it just, I was like, Oh, like you're supposed to love it. Like, I want you to love it as much as I love it. And, you know, I think there, there's a lot of interesting things that were going on with the cast. I think because the paradigms of the characters were a little like search and replace with the next generation cast, whether you had the con you know, officer, the security officer, the pilot, uh, the captain, the doctor, the, the first officer. So there was a, there was a, a, a tracing uh, over somebody else's picture of who these characters uh, should be in terms of their placement on the crew that felt perhaps uninspired. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the ones who worked, worked really well when they were utilized uh, correctly. I think Tim Russ as Tuvok was a secret weapon that was, was rarely deployed to maximum efficacy because he was so good. He understood his character so well. And it was great to see a black Vulcan and, and challenge people's perceptions of what that meant for uh, a, a certain faction of the audience. And to be inclusive in that way, where as opposed to next generation, where you're casting a, a black man to play a Klingon and, you know, who has, you know, Afrocentric hair and things, you know, of uh, that effect. Well, not the first season he had the Bob, uh, the Prince Valiant, but when, you know, there's something about the depictions culturally for specific uh, species that is sometimes problematic in, in Star Trek. And I felt like casting Tim Russ as, as a Vulcan subverted all of those things in a wonderful way. And so I, I will always be a big Tim Russ fan, which is why I, I loved Mel so much and, and thought that, you know, I was watching it uh, a couple of months ago when it was on um, television and my partner came into the kitchen and was like, that guy's a great actor. And, you know, he's not necessarily a big Star Trek fan, but he recognized that there was really compelling work. And he sat down and watched the entirety of the episode because you have, you know, Brad Dwarf as Suter and, and Tim Russ and all of these great two-hander scenes. So I loved Tim Russ. I thought he was, he was fantastic. I thought um, the doctor was inspired in many ways, telling this wonderful AI story that felt distinct from data. Um, I can't praise Kate Mulgrew enough. Uh, she was always game, even, even when things were tense behind the scenes, she was always a pro in front of the camera. And, you know, I think that there were certain blandnesses with Harry Kim and Tom Paris that, that sort of fell into to kind of traps of Star Trek. 
um, with just being the guys that sort of like, whether it's their crushes or their, uh, uh, their love of 20th century iconography, that they, they didn't feel as fully realized. And I don't think that is on the actors as much as it is on the, the writers and the storytellers for not really giving them any sort of distinction beyond like, Oh, it's Harry Kim. He's, he's young and, and enthusiastic. And it kind of never evolved past that. Like even, even into season seven, Garrett Wong didn't have a lot to do uh, in terms of character growth, but when he was given it, he, he rose to the challenge, like in timeless, timeless. Wonderful. What if you had one chance to change history? They were all killed on impact. One chance to save your crew. We're here to save 150 lives. If you succeed, countless lives will be affected. They will risk it all. It's not working. We're coming in too fast. To run a race. All hands race for impact. Against time itself. I killed them. On the next Star Trek Voyager. And, and so, you know, this broken man who was filled with regret and wanted desperately to undo the mistakes that he, he made and was compelling as an older version of himself. Uh, and, you know, so I thought that, like, when they were given the opportunity to do something, it was great. But I don't think Tom Paris ever had a really great episode. And I think Robbie McNeil was, uh, like, game for whatever was thrown his way. But, you know, you, you make him a salamander and that's kind of the most memorable thing that they've done with him is is not, you know, it's not great for the, it doesn't give the actor as much to play. I think Janeway and Seven of Nine and the Doctor as the, uh, the uh, you know, the new version of Kirk, Spock and McCoy, I... I prefer to Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Don't throw anything at me, but I loved that it was two women, one of whom was incredibly traumatized and didn't quite realize just how traumatized she was. And in, in watching those episodes, Jerry Ryan and Kate Mulgrew are great together. They're mm-hmm. great, and their conflict is great. Like if they, and it is unique to Voyager's uh, dilemma, which is being far away from from civilization, their civilization. So they can't just like take her home to her grandparents. They have to deal with her and all of the Borg stories. Even though we were very concerned about dipping back into Borg storylines because they were so delicious and 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 such a rich dish. Every time we did. Those are some of the best episodes of, of Voyager. It's funny. Uh, Go ahead, Ash. Just going to say that, you know, I think um, Paris a little bit got Rikered. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, to notwithstanding, you know, it's, he was supposed to be like, oh, he's that young guy who's going to be like the Kirk, who's going to be like the Janeway. And we're going to see him kind of grow into that and sort of be that. And the problem with being that character on the show is that there is a character who's already sitting in the chair. Um, and I think that he just, as, as great as I think that Robbie McNeil is, I mean, he was great in the first duty, right? I mean, yeah, as the Colonel, the same yeah, character. He's, he's yeah. awesome. Um, that he, he was in a place where he was and always- He-Man. Like, and He-Man. Don't forget He-Man, He-Man Masters <laughs> of the Universe. And, and who can forget He-Man and Masters of the Universe? Um, you know, uh, I, I think we'd all like to forget He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, although- uh, Courtney Cox, well, maybe. Yeah, you know, it's like I love the beginning of that movie. We digress. Um, hey, Frank Langella is good. Frank Langella is good. And good. So are the visual uh, effects. No, I, mean, I think like uh, like his best episode for me was uh, was probably like one of my favorite. I can't believe I have a favorite Harry Kim episode, but I do. Uh, was uh, was the shoot right? Because that was the time that relationship between those two guys like took on real gravity and it became a real thing, um, and it had weight and. Uh, you know, and Kim uh, protecting his friend and, you know, and Paris's breakdown, like through that episode, even though it all gets resolved at the end, which was always the knock on Voyager, it was compelling while it happened, which is why I never gave a shit about the Oh, year of hell ends. And then it doesn't mean anything. Well, no, in the context of the episode, it actually meant something. Um, and that's the drama I'm responding to. But, but I, I think that I, I always felt like the, the character of Paris was up against the wall and didn't have a lot of places to go because 
the structure of the show just didn't allow it. Convicted of a crime they didn't commit. Nobody ever gets out of prison on Aquatiri. Imprisoned in a hell they could never survive. What we have to do is find a way out of this place. Ravaged by a punishment they can barely endure. What's happening to me? For Paris and Kim, the verdict is final. They'd like us all to kill each other. From this prison, there is no escape. Ah! On the next Star Trek Voyager. I would always say that when Star Trek can uh, redeem a ridiculous TV guy logline, it's at its best. Like, who would think it's a planet of gangsters this week and the Enterprise must deal with, you know, and it's like, piece of the action, great. And it's the same thing with Tuvics. You know, you have an episode, uh, uh, you know, Neelix and, and Tuvok are combined into one being this week on Star, on Star Trek Voyager. It's like, this sounds awful. You know, same thing we talked about with Brandon on Genesis. You know, that sounds like an awful episode. But when Star Trek can nail that ridiculous high concept, it's at its best. I cry in Tuvix every time I see it. I cry. Like it, that episode makes me cry and it has no business making me cry because it's ridiculous. <laughs> but it, it's right. Right. when he's begging for his life, you're just like, oh my God, this is like, you know, chef's kisses. Well, that's another time where they could have strung that out for a season. Right. You know, and made the Tuvix character a, a season long and made the audience really like that character. And then at the end have to make this wrenching decision. I mean, it could have been, it could have torn everybody apart if you'd really come to love that character. But I think in the end, the decision that was made was the correct decision. Right. Well, that was the, the way that the format of the show, I think got in the way of the drama of the show. Because look, I, I'm never gonna argue that, yeah, we know that everything has to reset and so I just don't give a shit. That's not fair and that's not right. It's like, we, we know that's, that's baked into the cake. Um, but the dramatic decision that Janeway has to make at the end of that episode, right? I mean, all the stuff you're saying is exactly right. All that stuff is great. And I think, you know, the first time I watched that, the first couple of times I watched that episode, I walked away from it angry at Janeway, but but like in a very meta way, because I was angry at her, I felt like she made a decision to serve the format of this show. Like it versus kind of serving, um, you know, Man. what I kind of wanted to be right. And I think, you know, looking back at that episode now, I, I, feel, I feel differently about that. But at the time, you know, I really felt like what was hanging, what was hanging over her decision was was um was this element that was out of her hands that was very frustrating for me um as a as a viewer on on first run well she was destroying one life to save two and that's what it kind of boiled down to in an elegant way and i think janeway is always so good when she is up against a wall and she's made a decision you know i i Equinox, when she has the uh, the, the traitorous uh, uh, crew member in the cargo bay, and she's like, "Fine, well, we'll just open, we'll just drop the shields in this territory or this section of the ship, and you'll have to deal with the alien species that you've been murdering." And Chakotay's like, "Don't do it," and <laughs> and she's like, "Pipe down." And she's great because she's like, this is what I got to do. And I've made up my mind and I see my path and this is what I'm doing. And we often talked about Janeway uh, appropriately or inappropriately uh, as, as being a little bit like Mel Gibson and Lethal Weapon, that she was on her own, making up her own rules. And we didn't necessarily, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a waterproof concept where you can say across the board, well, like clearly like she stuck to, to her guns and that that character element of of who she was because it, it it changed from episode to episode but she was always her best when everybody was telling her not to do what she had set her mind to do i just wish she had said so much for diplomatic immunity that would have been great <laughs> diplomatic immunity <laughs> so uh, let me ask you before we wrap up and god there's so much to talk about but i can everybody give me give me their favorite episode um and and least favorite i think we got to do least favorite but favorite least favorite episode of uh, of, of voyager I'll, I'll start with ashley uh sure i'm going to say unity and that's my favorite yeah uh and my least favorite is um the 47s 
The 37s. 37s. Thank you. I hated it so much, I put an extra 10 fucking years on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Rob? Well, Threshold has to be my worst episode. I mean, come on. But I think my favorite episode of Voyager is Blink of an Eye, which yeah. is an off-concept singular show. But every time I watch that episode, I, I, it gets me right in the feels by the end because it's something only Voyager would have done. And I, I just, I love that episode. It's such a great sci-fi concept. And I love how all the characters react. Darren? I have to say that the caretaker is my favorite because I had some, uh, you know, direct connection with it. But um, I, I can't pick a worst one. And it's not because I think they're all bad. It's just that there's, I, I'm just going to say the second season. I'm just going to say the second season. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I would, I would say for my, my best, it's either a, a Bride of Chaotica or Living Witness. And uh, yeah. worst is the one with Michael McKeon. I don't even remember. The Clown? What was that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I love Michael McKean and Better Call Saul and Spinal Tap. But in Voyager, wow. That was a mighty wind. Brian? It's hard to pick a favorite because I, love, I, I truly love so many of the episodes. But in terms of drama and... Uh, performances, I have to say, meld because mm. I, I thought Tim Russ and, and Brad Dwarf were were amazing together. Um, and I, I I am hard pressed to pick a a least favorite episode because even uh, some of the stinkers still were Star Trek performatively. In, in, in a way, even Threshold, which like, if I had a gun held to my head, I would probably say Threshold. All great explorers. 9.9, 9.95. Cross a dangerous threshold. Warp 10 to break an impossible barrier. Congratulations, you just made the history books. But one man's journey. Medical emergency. One man's risk. His body is going through some sort of mutation. Is another man's terror. What's happening? On the next Star Trek Voyager. There is something about the early scenes before they became salamander lovers that I was like, okay, they're trying. They're trying to, <laughs> to craft character dynamics. Uh, and so, um, but yeah, I mean, I could go on and on uh, about the, the Jerry Ryan, Kate Mulgrew episodes in four or five six and seven that I I'm, I'm constantly uh, proud of being uh, affiliated with those characters and, and the show and, and Jerry Ryan and Kate Mulgrew. Like I keep, I, I, I forget, you know, even like when I was working on the show, I was like, Jerry's great, but like, she doesn't like, she's a Borg. And so her expression is very narrow. So she doesn't, you know, have a lot of opportunity and then rewatching it. Now I'm like, she's got moves and there is a tiramisu uh, in effect here. It's not just this cookie. It's like, she's got layers and she's playing things that um, I think she wasn't credited for because of the costume and uh, being brought in for such obvious TNA reasons uh, to, to get viewers to, to come to the show. She, she's, a great actress. Yeah. Can I rise to the defense of Threshold? I know you, Mark's. Go Mark, ahead, Ashley. If you do it quickly. Uh, yeah, very quickly. Look, the thing about Threshold and why it's not my least favorite uh, is that as brain meltingly bad as it is, it's not boring. No. Um, you know, much like, I mean, and look, on some level, it's like a train wreck. You can't stop watching it, but you can't stop watching that episode. It's not boring. Why, it's the reason why I don't like the 30 sets. It's like, you can you can totally stop watching that episode. Totally <laughs> <laughs> Brian, let me ask you this as we wrap up. This is the last question, is, and it would be, um, what was your takeaway from your experience on Voyager when you went to create your own Star Trek series, you know, your version of what ultimately became Discovery? What did you learn or, or, or what knowledge did you glean from your experience on Voyager that was useful to you besides obviously being a lifelong Star Trek fan was there anything specific you you learned from Voyager that you were able to apply in that process 
Um, it wasn't necessarily that I was able to apply it uh, as much as I was able to understand and respect the amount of work that goes into world building on, on such a show. And, you know, the fact that they, they spent, I think close to $30 million on sets uh, to, to get, um, don't quote me on that. Cause I'm sure it's like something like three, but I, when I was there, I remember it being a significant amount because they were going to amortize it over a hundred episodes and uh, that's how they could afford to do a Star Trek show is that they knew and respected the size and scale of what they were engaging in and built those sets with plans to use them. So really, they were benefiting from the experience of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and then on to Voyager on, on how to build a world and a production that was able to pull off that world in, uh, in, a, in a television schedule. Right. Right. Well, I want to I want to thank Brian for being with us to look back and have this happy birthday celebration for Star Trek Voyager. And of course, welcome back, uh, Rob Burnett and Ashley Miller. And um, until next Saturday, I want to thank you for joining us and remind you that um, episodes of uh, Inglorious Trexperts and all the other Electric Now. Uh, electric podcasts are available now on the electric now app so download the electric now app at your favorite uh app store you can get uh not only episodes of this podcast but best movies never made the 430 movie the rebel and the rogue a star wars podcast and of course shows from the electric library including the librarians and the outpost so check that out and uh, we want to thank bill ritter for making us sound so good even via zoom we sound better than we should and of course, our research consultant, Peter Holmstrom, and our production coordinator, Zach Raggetts, and of course, our producer, Natalie Miscali. So until next week, keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course. Engage. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.